Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there or maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. But today, Taylor and I are extending a very machinic welcome to our guest, Sean Bowden, senior lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University and author of The Priority of Events, Deleuze's Logic of Sense. So, Sean, thanks so much for joining Taylor and I on the happy hour this week. Thanks, Cooper. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to be with you and, and chatting about Deleuze. As a kind of uh, broad note, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot since we had Henry Summers Hall on. I called him Professor. <laughs> he got mortified, right? Because ah. in in, uh, in Britain, that's there's a whole different gradation of terminology to be used. Whereas I think in America, just if you've got your PhD or if you're you're sort of you know, an adjunct, or whatever. Everyone's professor in in my head. So is is mm-hmm. there is there the same kind of gradation, senior lecturer? And if I called you professor, would that be something of uh, a faux mis- pas? A faux pas, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not quite right. We're probably closer <laughs> to the UK system. So yeah, okay. we have um, sort of entry level position as lecturer and senior lecturer, associate professor, professor. I, th- I think that's that would be the same for Henry. It's good to know, and uh, but that's totally besides the point. Just. I'd love to hear if you have any memories, anecdotes of your sort of first encounters with philosophy, what caught your interest. I know you double majored in philosophy and French, right? So do you want to tell us just a little bit about your interest in those subjects that obviously dovetailed into your becoming interested in the work of Deleuze? Yeah, sure. So I I didn't start out in philosophy. Uh I didn't get into philosophy until a little bit later on, probably my mid-20s, I suppose. Uh, started out doing law, in fact, and yeah, it wasn't particularly. It wasn't really doing it for me. Um, I took mm-hmm. some time out of took some time out of law. I studied a little audio engineering. I played in some very bad rock and roll bands. Hey, that's uh, great. <laughs> yeah, and then decided I wanted to go back to uh-huh. university. Started studying psychology and sociology. Mm-hmm. One of my sociology teachers. A professor. He was very much into Foucault and started to read some Foucault. I found Deleuze's work, Deleuze's yeah. book on Foucault, and that was a real eye-opener for me. Uh, and as a result of that, I picked up a, a lot more mm-hmm. Deleuze. I started reading the, the Capitalism and Schizophrenia volumes as an undergrad, and then decided mm-hmm. I wanted to finish off my studies in philosophy. We packed up my bags and moved down to Sydney to um, work with Paul Patton, who was at the University right. of at that time. So obviously the the translator of Difference and Repetition, but a number of other works as well. Yeah, and um, I've been stuck in philosophy and, and with Deleuze ever since, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess my obviously my understanding of Deleuze has been refined somewhat over the years, but mm-hmm. I remember being struck straight away just by the 
the sense of freedom that I got from reading Anti-Oedipus and, and A Thousand Plateaus. I mean, I didn't understand a lot of the technical backgrounds to the books. But yeah, the, the basic kind of anti-foundationalist approach mm-hmm. to things, the anti-essentialist approach to things, the idea that, you know, we're, we're creatures who have to invent ourselves experimentally, I think was really liberating for me as, a, as an undergrad. Yeah, and then I uh, obviously started to read Deleuze's early work. Mm-hmm. I became obsessed for a number of years by difference in repetition and, and the look of sense. And yeah, yeah I've been stuck there for, uh, stuck in these books for quite some time. And there is a sense in which does one ever know all of the, the nuts and bolts of these works, especially something like Capitalism Schizophrenia. It is a kind of labyrinthine. You can follow the rabbit hole down to use an Alice in Wonderland <laughs> reference. You can follow the rabbit hole down, the breadcrumbs to all sorts of interesting um avenues and and so i guess before delving into your 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 book on on the logic of sense what exactly pulled you into that work in particular if you had this interest in all of them was it not to anticipate but was was some of this work uh influenced by james williams because you mentioned his he's one of the other i'm not sure if there are any other books on logic of sense in english at least but i know that you know williams has has a book on it as well yeah, so I met James while I was studying my from my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess he was writing his book on the logic of sense at the same time as I was writing my thesis, and his his book wasn't published until right at the end right. of my thesis, which was a which was a shame. I would have liked to have lent a bit more heavily on it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I think we take uh, we take slightly different approaches, though complementary approaches to the logic of sense. At least, at least in this, well, that, that was my thesis: the priority of events, and and became yes. uh, the monograph. But there, I was very concerned to excavate the sources of Deleuze's logic of sense. Right. Um, James, though, and this is something James does very well. It takes a, a much more uh, general look at at the issues and is able to engage with the concepts in a way that's very conversational, that uses a lot of real world examples and so on. And so, yeah, the books are quite different in their focus, but they they complement each other as well in that respect. I think James's is more more hands-on, more has a more practical orientation perhaps. Mine though was um, was a little more theoretical. Yeah, and and you divide it into five topics, uh, the Stoics, Leibniz, Lautmann and Simondon, which I appreciate it. Structuralism, psychoanalysis. I'm wondering, you do give some background, and part of this is strategic, right? And as you said, theoretical. But was there, when you were writing, your drafting your thesis, was this just something that that sort of made sense to you to break it up in that way? Or, or was this, I guess, what was the genesis behind it, if you can give a little bit of that thought process? Yeah, I mean... I guess at the time I was looking at it, and I think a lot of theses maybe start like this. You know, mm-hmm. you become interested in a book or in a, in a topic, and you go looking around for literature on it, and not being able to find any, you decide, mm-hmm. well, you know, there's something that really needs to be written here, or I, I really, I guess, I need to write the book that I wish I had coming to this topic. Uh, so there was a little bit of of that in terms of how the book ended up being structured. I mean, the logic of sense is is a very puzzling text, as you know. Yes. It's not composed of chapters; it's composed of series that have complex relations between one another. And you know, how do you how do you take a broad overview of, of a text like that? You know, it requires some some restructuring. And I mean, I was reading reading around various other things at the time. 
and started to read a little bit of process philosophy, in particular, just sort of introductions to, to process philosophy. That's, that's right. where I was at at the time. And yeah, it came to see that there's this basic distinction between, you know, substance-oriented ontologies or, or metaphysics and process-oriented ones. Right. And it was a question, you know, what comes first, I suppose, the, um, the substance that causes the change or the change that brings about the thing? And, mm-hmm. you know, I came to realize that Deleuze's answer was that it's just changes, changes all the way down. Yeah. And so, you know, once I had this basic process philosophy framework, it then became a question I've got to ask, you know, I had this question I could ask of each of the major thinkers to those treats in that book, you know, to what extent do these thinkers advance the kind of process philosophy that Deleuze is interested in, you know, mm-hmm. aiming to get a process explanation of, of sense, events, language, thought, and so on, and ethics, of course, as well in, in the logic of sense. Right. So then, you know, I had a rough structure for the book. You know, he talks a lot about the Stoics, a lot about Leibniz, very long section on psychoanalysis, which takes up about a third of the book. You know, what could each of these figures offer Deleuze's process philosophy of sense, events, language, ethics, and and so on? And where do they fall short? You know, what does Deleuze need to say on top of that in order to to make it work? You know, the book was was structured in this way. You know, so, for example, the chapter on on the Stoics, I went through interstoic philosophy in, in quite a bit of detail, yes. um, showed what Deleuze took from it, but also where for Deleuze that the Stoics didn't go far enough. Yeah. You know, so they ended up falling back into a kind of substance ontology to, right. to a certain extent. Well, okay, you know, so the Stoics stop short. What else needs to be said? Or oh, well, let's turn to Leibniz and see what Deleuze takes from Leibniz and, and mm-hmm. so on through, through the other figures. I mean, the logic of sense is a puzzle. It's a problem in, in the Deleuzean sense that, you know, the reader can have an, an encounter with. They don't know what to do with it. And, you know, they <laughs> need to try and do something fairly creative to grasp the central problems, the central themes, and to try and make sense of them. I really liked how you pointed out that not only did the Stoics fall back on, let's say, even after sort of complicating the Kronos Zeus substance-based, the sort of God-based model of of what? The mixture of, of bodies and whatever. They fall back into this kind of substance metaphysics, as you, as you said. But Leibniz, even though he complicates this with his mathematical innovations, his metaphysical, his conceptual innovations, he seems to never have fallen back, but, but always presupposed a kind of transcendent principle of, of God working at the same time. So they kind of both have this dynamic view that, and yet still leaves this transcendent, uh, this sort of anchoring predetermining point, or I don't even say point, but this, <laughs> you know, this all, this totality that Deleuze can't abide, right? There's something about, I don't want to say, call it Deleuze's atheism, if you will, but there is something presupposed, I think, in his well, what, the affirmation of Divergent Series, the eternal return, if you want to be loose about it. Is there something about this in Deleuze's work? Because his, his atheism extends also to the unity of the self and the world. I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about this, this uh, you call it the process philosophy, where he wants to, he wants to start with pre-individual singularities and not with some sort of guarantee above I mean, what's interesting in, in process philosophy is that, um, you know, Whitehead studies mm-hmm. has survived mainly in theology departments. And there are a lot of theologians, 
there are a lot of theologians who are very interested in in a kind of Whiteheadian God, you know, God as process. And you know, I think there's some work there for theologians to get into Deleuze's work and try and understand or, or redescribe, you know, a, a godlike form in terms of in terms of processes. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, there's the connection with Spinoza there too, right? You know, which is tantalising, and um, and some work can be done in this regard. And I do remember. I do remember from one of Deleuze's seminars, and I'm really operating from a very sketchy memory here, but, um, you know, Deleuze attributed, you know, the creation of a, a lot of logic to theological thought uh, mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. which was particularly interesting. So the starting point for Deleuze, being so influenced by Nietzsche in particular, is certainly not with a transcendent God or some set of first principles and so on and, and so forth. You know, his starting point is really... I think with, uh, you know, in the world, with the variety of encounters that we have, the complex experiences that we have, the complex situations and various structures that we find ourselves immersed in. And the question then becomes, well, you know, what kind of philosophy can we elaborate on that basis? So, Mm -hmm. you know, very imminent conception of doing philosophy. And look, I think this, um, this obviously relates to, this relates as well to, Badiou's take on Deleuze. I mean, as, as right. we know, Badiou was um, accused Deleuze of um, advancing a kind of metaphysics of the one. Yes. Uh, you know, everything that there is is just a, a moment of the one's productive power or, or something like that. And again, I think um, the starting point is all wrong there. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. if we start a little more imminently, then we see that, um, you know, Deleuze has no need for the one. In fact, um, right. Yeah, there's a sense in which, in fact, you know, Deleuze and Badiou share a number of theses mm-hmm. with regards to the nature of events, the nature of truth, the way in which events rupture with the structured situations in which we mm-hmm. find ourselves and demand an open-ended transformation of those, of those situations. And obviously, you know, Deleuze is working in a particular tradition uh, as well, which is mm-hmm. moving away from philosophizing in terms of one's totalities and, and so on and so forth. He was very um, influenced by, by Jean Val in mm. France, professor at, at the Sorbonne, right. who was the one who really introduced, who really introduced American pragmatism to the, the French philosophical mm. scene. Wrote a wonderful book on pluralism and Anglo-American philosophy. Right, um, yeah. was a great promoter of James's work. And I think Deleuze was incredibly influenced by this as well. Certainly, there's a lot of stuff in the Hume book, for example, mm. which recalled some of Val's theses about empiricism and James's particular treatment of empiricism as well. So mm-hmm. all that to say, you know, Deleuze was working in a tradition that took a kind of pluralistic philosophy and imminent philosophy very seriously. You actually anticipated, I think, two or three of my questions. <laughs> I'll circle back to them and we can go deeper. Before moving to, I guess, one more anecdotal question, I recall you also edited or perhaps co-edited a volume on Deleuze and pragmatism, which I think Duffy published in. This is something that I haven't really delved into, but this biographical point about one of Deleuze's teachers sort of exposing him to the pragmatists, I think that's really interesting. And did you already have a sort of interest in that side of uh, the pond, if you will, as well? Yeah, I guess as a function of um, my undergraduate studies. So I was in... 
in a, a an analytic department essentially uh, um, yeah. I mean the University of Sydney at the time was uh, was an interesting place there was a, um, a kind of divide I guess between the continentals as it were and the, the analytic philosophers and in fact just before I started there they had two schools of philosophy I can't remember what they were called exactly but you know <laughs> they were split split along those those geographical and philosophical lines right just before I arrived there those two schools were merged into the, the one school of philosophy, but it certainly did have a strong analytic flavor to it. And a lot of the undergraduate units that I took were analytic in nature. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of pragmatism, but when I did start reading some of the pragmatists, you know, I started to see some real connections between James in particular mm -hmm. and Deleuze's work with their, you know, treatments of experience. I became very interested though in some of the, the neo-pragmatists, the new pragmatists, okay. like Rorty, like mm -hmm. Robert Brandom, because I thought that, you know, there was something in their work that resonated with Deleuze's treatment of language and sense in the logic of sense. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are all, point, all kinds of divergences between you know, the work of someone like Brandom and the work of someone like Deleuze, but I think, you know, I found it useful to read Brandon to then try and clarify some stuff that's that's going on in Deleuze. You know, they both cite uh, cite Frege as a bit of a, an influence on their treatment yeah. of sense and the way that Frege talks about sense and reference, for example, in direct contexts, was very influential for Brandon and you know is a, is a topic in in the logic of sense. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess I. I discovered the pragmatists fairly circuitously, although, you know, their work's germane given some of my analytic training as right. a I guess, you know, leaned on some of that work in order to clarify what's what's going on in Deleuze. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I appreciated your section, or at least your you unpack very quickly and clearly the the way in which Fragus categories can map onto Deleuze's and the opening of, of logic of sense and make and sort of you're able to connect those traditions in a way that I thought was was nicely done that that might you might sometimes see a book on Deleuze focus more on continental but I like I like seeing this bringing in of the analytical the analytic side and, and sort of merging the two obviously this is something that Badu himself kind of does he's able to allow for a kind of communication between the continental and the analytic as and in a certain sense, that divide is perhaps more of a shibboleth, if you will, and doesn't have to be as hard and fast. And the reason why I brought up Badu again, I mean, you brought him up as well. And we mentioned before the show that you also edited with Simon Duffy the volume on, it's a Badu in philosophy. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to know about your time in Paris 8. I was very curious about this because Paris 8, you know, obviously Deleuze didn't teach long enough for you to, to, have, to have taken a class with him, but he... After May 68, right, and Paris 8 is made, and there are these sort of restructurings of the university system. There's this whole political history that we won't necessarily go into, but it was kind of known for one of the more radical schools. I don't know if by the time you got there, it was the same way, but I saw that Badu was involved with your dissertation to some extent. Yeah, that's right. So I started my, my PhD at the University of New South Wales and mm -hmm. an opportunity came up to go to, to France for a year to do a degree that no longer exists. It's okay. called the DOA, DEA, the uh, Diplôme d'études approfondies. It's a, a one-year one master's perhaps. There was some coursework and, and a small thesis there. So I went, went across, undertook this degree for a year and while I was there, 
I was able to set up a, a coach hotel arrangement between the University of New South Wales and, and Paris 8, which allowed me, thankfully, to, to stay on in Paris for a few more years. Badju was, he was an emeritus professor at that stage, so he wasn't able to, you know, look after my project administratively. So I had another wonderful philosopher uh, who was at Paris 8 at the time, Stéphane Doyer, who I had a lot of contact with, but yes, had some contact with Badju as well. Yeah, we'd go along. He still had his regular seminar, his monthly seminar at that stage at the Ecole Normale. So I was able to attend that, which was wonderful. Didn't have too many supervisory meetings. He was um, a philosopher in great demand, uh, yeah, as, I, you can, I assume. as you can imagine. Every now and then he would have consultations with his supervised students and you'd turn up, you know, he'd be at in his office for a couple of hours on a, on a Friday or, or what have you. And if he didn't arrive hours in advance, you know, you'd really stand no chance of getting in to see him <laughs> because there'd be, there'd be a line of uh, students out the door waiting to, to talk to him. That's great. Um, so we had a couple of couple of brief meetings, but uh, he was obviously, you know, in the in the French system, it's a little different to the Australian system as far as examinations go. So in the Australian system, examiners always always need to be external to the university for a PhD or or an MA thesis. I see. Badger was my supervisor, you know, informal supervisor, I guess, was also one of my examiners for my PhD. So yeah, I wrote my thesis in English. I had to have a long introduction in French at the front of the thesis, and then I had to sit the oral defense in French. Badger was one of the examiners, asked me some wonderful and difficult questions about, yeah. uh, about Lautman, if I recall. Oh my God. Okay, um, great. Which I struggled with for a while, but yeah, he was he was a very generous interlocutor at the examination, which was terrific. It was a great experience for me to go across, spend so much time in Paris, really experience a very different kind of intellectual culture to the one that uh, we have in Australia. And um, yeah, had a wonderful opportunity to meet Badu, talk philosophy with him, and to listen to his his seminars. That's wonderful, and and you've already sort of answered the the other question I was going to bring up, but I'm wondering since you've already sort of knock Badu for this, because I, I, I see calling Deleuze a thinker of the one. It seems to completely overlook a lot of the fundamentals, which we can talk about later. But I'm wondering if, if I'm getting this right. I remember, and this could be an anecdote, where Badu kind of translates his name etymologically, like Alain Badu is, is like down with the old god. Am I making this up and misremembering this? Or is there something to this? Have you heard this? I'm not, I'm not sure what you're referring to, Taylor. I swear I've heard this. Maybe this was just an anecdote. Maybe someone's making a joke on, on my behalf. But Alain Badu would be sort of like rendered roughly as down with the old God. And so it's like, it's his way of claiming this sort of title. He was born to embody the, uh, the title of sort of bringing down the metaphysical one. The thinker of the multiple. Yeah. So obviously after the publication of The Clamor of Being, a lot of Deleuzeans were quite incensed and there were some um, <laughs> particularly aggressive reviews of the book. And, yeah. Um, I forget who the author was. It might have been um, Jose Gill. Yeah, um, yeah, that's who it was. Sort of accused Badu of trying to bury Deleuze, which was, yeah, I thought a rather... Hysterical? Exaggerated kind of <laughs> claim. Certainly, though, I mean, The Clamor of Beings a, is a difficult book. On the one hand, you know, it really clarified for me a lot of maybe not clarify for me what's going on in Deleuze, but it gave me access to aspects of Deleuze's thought that I, that weren't previously available to me. So in, in that sense, it was a, it was a wonderful book. And, you know, I know someone like, you know, my colleague and, and friend, John Rofe 
sees this book as a great work of philosophy, ultimately mm-hmm. you know, quite mistaken about Deleuze, but nevertheless, a very interesting and worthy book of philosophy that manages to, to say something interesting, to say something challenging and to yeah. move the debate forward. Yeah, um, it's, almost, it's almost like a buggering of Deleuze in a Deleuzean vein, but maybe a little bit more polemical. But it's pretty rough. Um, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> it's a bit of a rough buggering, that one. I mean, what's interesting about that book is you probably don't need to shift many of the theses, mm-hmm. many of the claims to see that, in fact, Badiou and Deleuze are so close on so many points. Yeah. So once you, you know, I think where Badiou goes wrong is he, you know, he obviously treats the virtual as a kind of self-sufficient domain. Right, right. right. You know, the virtual is the cause of the actual, but the virtual is also the the cause of itself, the cause of its own transformations and and so on. So it's in this respect that, you know, the virtual is another name for for the one. I see, yeah. To to Badiou's critique. But when we realise that for Deleuze, you know, the virtual and the actual are two inseparable poles of reality and that, yes, sure, you know, um, what happens to actual creatures needs to be explained in part with reference to the actualization of the virtual potentialities that they presuppose. Right. But at the same time, it's, you know, actual creatures and their complex encounters and creative endeavours and so on and so forth. It's, you know, what's going on in the actual that transforms the differential relations constitutive of the virtual. So these two aspects of reality are really inseparable. Once we can say that, you know, I think that obviously is fairly fairly brief account there, but, you know, we see that Deleuze is not a thinker of the one, he's a thinker of the, the multiple. Or multiplicity, as he might call it, right? That's right, substantive yeah. multiplicity. And then each of the chapters in the the Clamour of Being book, you know, they treat all of those concepts that are so dear to Deleuze, you know, event, truth, subject, uh, right. and so on. If we now go back and read Deleuze's theses about event, truth, and subject in light of this, you know, rectified understanding of his ontology, we see that actually the two thinkers are really close. Yes, they do have different conceptual vocabularies, but ultimately, you know, I do wonder whether these different conceptual vocabularies. You know, when, when we see the conceptual convergences between the two thinkers on ontology of the multiple, on event, truth, and, and subject, whether the different conceptual vocabularies in which their claims about these topics are, are couched, you know, even though these conceptual vocabularies are, are so different, I don't think those conceptual vocabularies are, are really differences that make a difference as mm. far as the kind of practical orientations of the two projects. And that's a, mm-hmm. you know, kind of wild claim. And I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners will think, you know, lots, I uh, need to say lots more there by way of justification. No, um, I like it. But yeah, this is something that, um, you know, a thought that I've come to. I recently wrote with a, with a colleague, a short piece on on Badju's Deleuze for uh, an upcoming collection. Okay, I'm just trying to recall the title now. It's for the um, the Oxford Handbook of Modern French Philosophy, which um, uh, right. come out maybe next year. I'm not too sure, but yeah, which looks at um, the the Badju Deleuze relationship and tries to make the claim in a little more detail than I've been able to do here that yeah, the two thinkers are actually really close to one another, and you know we just need to you know modify a little bit Badju's reading of Deleuze. <laughs> it is interesting because the way that the book starts, if I remember, and it's been over a decade since I've read it, but he does kind of start with almost this anecdotal, somewhat charming, you know, memory of 
their correspondence. And he, he almost seems to admit that they're kind of like, you know, sibling rivalry going on there, right? That he does kind of admit their closest, even if, you know, as Deleuze's interest in calculus, I was interested in set theory, algebra, you know, he, Badu makes these little fine distinctions. But I think you're right that there is something about the way in which one of the things I was thinking about before talking to you today, since I, I thought about Badu in relation to seeing that he was one of your advisors, was how something like fidelity to the event in Badu's sort of idea of, of subjects, you know, and sort of this obviously has a mathematical way of talking about it in terms of generic multiplicities and sort of bringing this fidelity to bear in which events can affect the situation. And I was wondering thinking about sort of your elaboration of whether it be the sage in the Stoic sense, or as Deleuze says elsewhere, I think in the series on the event, he talks about the actor sort of doubling the event in this abstract line and counteractualizing it. I'm, I'm wondering if there are, you can kind of see, even if they may not have, as you said, the same terminological view, that there are some elements where there's a small parallax going on, right? Where they, they do converge and diverge, but there's there's a lot of resonance, if you will, between the between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about this notion of fidelity in in Badu, and um, and I guess you were asking where we might find something like that in in Deleuze, and you know you referenced the the Stoics. I think that's the sage, the sage, to... the sage, right. and uh, the in the series on the event he talks about he talks about the god of Kronos and the actor as a as a contra do right as this anti god who doubles the event in a kind of taking it as an abstract line in order to counteractualize it so as to make the event a part of their own event. And I was thinking about how that yeah. sounds a lot like fidelity, even if... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, so this notion in the logic of sense of willing the event, I, yes. I think that is, you know, in general terms, that's Deleuze there talking about something very similar to what Badu is talking about when he talks about fidelity to the event. I mean, in both cases, you know, you know what they're saying it you know becomes a kind of an ethics of the event almost an ethical imperative you know yeah. do not reduce what happens the event here that you know the eruption you know the rupture with um the structured situation in which you find yourself do not try to reduce it or foreclose it in terms of what already exists yes you know show some fidelity to the event or in Deleuze's terms you know you yourself have to will the event you have to become worthy of what happens and yes you you are faithful to the event for Badju, and you are worthy of the event or you become worthy of the event in Deleuze by transforming the structured situation in which you find yourself in an open-ended way mm -hmm. in response to this event of rupture. For me, there there are very strong similarities between those, those two ideas. And, you know, it's sort of claims like this that led me to think that despite the very different conceptual vocabularies in which their couch, you know, the, the kind of practical bearing that these two philosophies can induce are, are very, very similar. And this is very clear, obviously, you know, in in relation to the ethical aspects of their philosophies, ethics mm. of fidelity for Badju, you know, the ethics of willing or becoming worthy of the event in Deleuze. This is great because you've, again, anticipated something. <laughs> I'll say this, and then I definitely want to let, let Cooper uh, speak because I, I always do this. I get a little excited. Mm -hmm. and, but you mentioned this, you know, as he says, he says something like ethics 
means this or it has nothing to say, right? It's, it's not to be unworthy of what happens to us. And there is a way in which we can become unworthy. And he even talks about this in Nietzsche and philosophy um, in various ways, but it's obviously we can be resentful, right, of what happens to us. We can judge, we can bring faults, we can try to place blame. And we end up, as he might say, we end up being bad players of the sort of the game of chance, right? We, we end up trying to be cheaters at the game and we sort of, uh, we don't affirm the whole of chance, if you will, right? But we try to, we try to find blame for it. Yeah, absolutely. So Nietzsche's very strongly in the background there. Mm-hmm. Um, Bergson's very strong in the background okay. there as well, I think. So the you know, these these methodological sections in the um, the two introductions to the creative mind volume, you know, where we find introduction to metaphysics and the possible and the real essay and and so on. And there, Deleuze makes a lot of this of these passages in the um, the first chapter of his book on Bergson mm-hmm. of the Bergsonism book. So there, for Bergson, you know. Essentially, it boils down to this. What Bergson is saying is, you know, sometimes we encounter problems for which our conceptual resources are just ill-suited. And that, you know, great philosophy for Bergson is going to consist in, you know, the creation of new terms, new fluid concepts, as he calls them, you know, in distinction from, you know, those frozen concepts that we tend to walk around with in our heads all the time. We need to create these new fluid concepts with which to pose and resolve new problems. And I think this is something that crops back up again in the logic of sense and, you know, where Deleuze is talking about this notion of willing willing events, right? So we encounter something, you know, we experience an event, there's a kind of rupture with the structured nature of our situation. How do we become worthy of it? Well, we become worthy of it by transforming the structure of our situation, including the structure of our thought, you know, the way in which we think about things. And again, you know, this is a theme that recurs continuously, I think, in, in Deleuze. And again, it's present in uh, in what is philosophy, for example, yeah. you know, the creation of philosophical concepts. Mm-hmm. Deleuze and Guattari want to say, you know, happens as a function of problems. Yeah. You know, you create new philosophical concepts with which to pose and solve problems that are genuinely new. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche's in the background there. Bergson's in the background there. The Stoics, of course, so, you know, the yeah. Stoics, their ethical imperative was, you know, to live according to nature. This becomes a little transformed in, in the logic of sense. So it's not so, not so much, you know, live according to nature as, you know, live according to the event which never ceases to, to come about. So the Stoics are in the, in the background there. But then what's really interesting as well is that Deleuze talks about this notion of willing the event in relation to this French poet, surrealist poet, Bousquet. Bousquet, yeah. Yeah, which is... The wound I was born for, right? He says right. something like, yeah. the, the, my wound pre-existed me. I was born to embody my wound, right? Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, it was how to become worthy of that very real event, absolutely transformative event for Bousquet. And, and of course, you know, as a result of that, he was bedridden in incredible pain and mm-hmm. was taking some fairly strong medication um, for the pain and became incredibly prominent surrealist poet, you know, and mm. in his poetry, his wound is a constant theme. And he was able to, I think it might have been Elkier, he, he put it something like this, you know, you have to say that um, no longer that uh, Bousquet was wounded, but that Bousquet became his wound. It's a stoic way of putting it, kind of, right? The Or maybe not. It's, they would put it in the present tense, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I guess, you know, the other thing this little discussion suggests as well is just how difficult it is to, to read Deleuze's work. So, you know, we've been talking about this little notion of, of willing the event here. And in order to grasp it in its full import, 
you know, we've had to, we've spoken about Nietzsche, we've spoken about um, about Bergson, about the Stoics, and now mm-hmm. about this poet um, Busquet. I mean, and arguably in the background of all of this as well is Hegel. Interesting. They're diametrically opposed in this in this way. You know, towards the end of the phenomenology, Hegel says something like, you know, the wounds of spirit heal and leave no trace. Right, um, right, right. Okay. Whereas the wound for Deleuze is something that is always already open. The wound yes, is a map. So. It, it precedes the territory, something like this, right? You know, there's a... But I was also thinking about... He ends that, uh, he ends that series on the event. After going through Bousquet, he ends it talking about Nietzsche and Nietzsche's collapse and how we can kind of find this resonance between a thinker or a writer and their illness and that can kind of redefine style and i'm wondering in the background not to be too biographical or, or psychological but in 68 Deleuze's he comes down with tuberculosis he has to have surgery he has one full lung removed as long as as well as a portion of it i'm sure he was still a heavy smoker at the time anyway because that was french life but i'm wondering in these lines because he will continue this trope throughout his um, work, even up to the end with The Exhausted, where he is thinking through illness in such a, especially in logic of sense, you see it in other series too, but it's, it's such a personal thing. I'm wondering if he's obviously very cognizant of his own illness. I mean, it seems he would have to be, yeah. right? You know, he was never very keen to discuss his philosophy in terms of his own biography. Of right, course. of course. But yeah, it was, I guess... You know, Deleuze was always searching for that point where the, the personal became impersonal, touched yeah. on the impersonal, because, you know, that's where life is. I think you're absolutely right there. I guess, though, you know, following Deleuze, I guess I, I wouldn't want to try and understand it. You know, it's tempting to think that, you know, Deleuze's biography is behind his interest in, in these themes, but I wouldn't want to try and reduce this. Not at not all. That I'm, not that I'm suggesting that's what yeah. you're doing, Taylor, yeah. but... Um, yeah, I guess we should be careful about trying to reduce philosophy to um, to a kind of intellectual biography. As interesting as, as that is, and, you know, as unavoidable as that is as well, you know, I'm always reading little biographies of the thinkers that I'm engaged with. Read recently Sue Prudeau's wonderful biography of, of Nietzsche. Oh, okay. Um, I, I Am Dynamite, which is wonderful and, and really brings out it really brings out a, a portrait of Nietzsche as, you know, suffering not only physically but psychologically. Yeah. And it really helps us appreciate all the more what Nietzsche, the human being, the philosopher, was able to overcome in order to advance this, you know, incredible life-affirming philosophy. And no doubt, you know, readers of Deleuze have the same the same sense. You know, mm-hmm. knowing a little bit about Deleuze's biography, he was able to overcome incredible, you know, physical problems and nevertheless advance a life-affirming philosophy that's free of resentment. You know, Deleuze is true to his word here. I think he became someone who was worthy of the events that happened to him. Exactly. And uh, that's a really good good point to bring. And, and Nietzsche, obviously, one of the things that always stuck out to me was how he writes about convalescence. I know that was something that Nietzsche or that Deleuze himself picked out in what, 62 in his book on Nietzsche before his own, you know, failing health. But this this notion of convalescence as a sort of the way in which the body thinks from the perspective of health toward illness and and vice versa, and how there is, you know, this dynamic resonance between the two states that, that is also to bring in Spinoza too, who had physical elements from, you know, uh, grinding lenses. It's about cultivating joy and about how that can become 
potentially these passive joyful affections can can sort of take on or promote an active overflowing of life. There was no question there, just just riffing, just... Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, all of these thinkers, in a sense, you know, there's a sense in which you can talk about them as, you know, using using illness to develop a new perspective on, you know, what's yeah. ordinarily considered health. And, yeah. you know, through this new perspective to get a sense of what constitutes, you know, what Nietzsche calls and, you know, what Deleuze called following Nietzsche, the, the great health. This is mm-hmm. the point where, you know, the, the personal, as it were, touches on the the impersonal. Coop, did you... Uh... You want to you wanna shut me up? <laughs> <laughs> this question may wrap up the intensity a little bit, Sean. So if, if it's too much, you just let me know. But one of the things that I brought this up in our conversation with Simon Duffy, just in looking at the Leibniz and, you know, just to maybe set the stage for you. So I have this idea that in a sense, what to look, well, Leibniz is kind of like, He's schizophrenizing mathematics to a degree with his differential calculus, at least maybe reading that through Deleuze, I would say, perhaps. So one sort of connection that I'm drawing, I can't, you know, maybe jump the last little gap to would be how the Leibnizian singularities or monads sort of correspond to the partial objects or zones of intensity rather on the body without organs. I've got some quote from your text that I can pull up if you need a little bit of, of scaffolding to think about this, but I don't know if does that strike you just immediately? Does that kind of jar? Does that kind of get your thoughts moving at all? Or am I kind of off base here? It's a really interesting question. Deleuze has a complex relationship with Leibniz. You know, so I think of the book on Leibniz on the fold, for mm-hmm. example. You know, it's a wonderful work of scholarship on Leibniz and follows Leibniz very, very closely. I think Dan Smith put it like this somewhere that, um, you know, Deleuze wants to follow a philosopher as far as he can go, mm. but also push that philosopher to the point where, you know, something tips over into this differential philosophy that Deleuze himself is best known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the book on Leibniz, The Fold, is an excellent example of this. You know, Deleuze touches on everything from Leibniz's, Leibniz's physics to his mm-hmm. metaphysics to his theology to his practical philosophy even mm-hmm. um and it's only right at the end of the book that Deleuze says something along the lines of well you know but we're living in a kind of different world now um you know following i don't think he, he references Nietzsche there but you know taking seriously the, the kind of Nietzschean observation that god is dead you know we no longer believe in god and you know and what this means is that the series are no longer organized in terms of convergences. You right. know, we can no longer think of a single best of all possible worlds in the way that Leibniz did. The world that displays the, the most um, perfection and, and continuity. The world that's you know, conceived by God as the best possible amongst all the, the other possible worlds that are at least possible. But, you know, they're not all compossible with each other. So, you know... We no longer believe in God. God is dead. What are we left with? Well, we're left with, yes, sure, you know, there are some convergent series there, but, you know, we're left confronted by incompossible worlds. Mm-hmm. And the monad here, the singularity, is not something that is determined within a particular world of convergent series. The monad is something that is, Deleuze says, astride incompossible worlds. So, you know, how does this relate to the notion of partial objects? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's difficult to sort of jump quickly between these different kinds of conceptual vocabularies. Yeah. But certainly we get a sense in which, you know, the object in question here is no longer something that could eventually find its place within 
a convergent series. So, you know, the partial object is not something that is going to be able to be integrated into, you know, a convergent world, a happy family with, you know, fully integrated <laughs> mother and father figures and well-adjusted infant and, and so on. You know, the object itself is differential and is inseparable from its differential relations to other series of differences and so on and so forth, where, you know, the problem of these differences is something that confronts mm. the child. So, you know, jumping now to a psychoanalytic kind of vocabulary, these incompatible worlds, these series of different differences are something that confronts the, the child as a problem. And it's a, it's a problem that they themselves need to solve. And there's no predetermined endpoint. There's right. no predetermined solution to this problem of divergences. You know, we can only solve these problems experimentally in this sort of groping and, and blind way. I mean, interestingly, in the logic of sense, where Deleuze talks a lot about Leibniz in the middle of the book, I think it's around the, the 15th, 16th, and 17th That's right, series. Yeah. There he tries to talk about a genesis of sense in a way that takes the God out of Leibniz's philosophy. What he notes, first of all, is, you know, you have, first of all, the convergent series that is the world. We might say it's the, you know, the habitual world, as it were. So, you know, a world in which everything has its place, is related in determinate ways to other things and so on. Of course, as individuals, you know, we're also determined within this, within this world. We do, however, and can encounter things which demand a kind of transcendence of this convergent world. You know, something emerges, Deleuze says, and again, you know, following Leibniz in some respects, something emerges in between incompossible worlds. And we as thinkers need to think this object equals X, this paradoxical entity that's astride yeah. different inc incompossible worlds. And there, you know, he's, he's thinking about Leibniz's letters to Arnaud, which talk about, you know, the different atoms and the different incompossible worlds and so on and so forth. You know, in the end, Deleuze says, you know, there's something that's common to incompossible worlds. And we as thinkers, you know, we're tasked with thinking this this paradoxical entity. And we can only think this paradoxical entity by transcending our particular determination within a given world and becoming something other than what we are, thinking differently to the way we currently think. And this arguably, you know, here Deleuze is setting up, as it were, the, the structural coordinates for the genesis of sense. And then later in the book, in where he draws heavily on the vocabulary of psychoanalysis, you know, not only Freud, but Lacan and, uh, is in the background as well, and uh, Melanie Klein is dealt with explicitly. You know, in this section, arguably, Deleuze wants to dynamize this account. So, you know, Leibniz gives him the structural coordinates for the genesis of sense. In the psychoanalytic section, as it were, Deleuze dynamizes this account and drawing on a psychoanalytic vocabulary, talks about the way in which, you know, the infant in its psychogenesis confronts these problems of divergence and counters things that just don't fit and mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. as it were, constrain the infant to look for solutions to their problems at these higher, more complex levels. So from domain of confused sensation through to the development of kind of imaginary responses to the problems encountered in the depths of bodies, the child tries to draw for itself 
these different parental imagos, these images, which are supposed to integrate series of differences. But then, you know, in this imaginary stage, again, another problem is encountered. The real father appears as the bearer of symbolic law. And again, you know, that the child confronts a problem of divergence, you know, between mm -hmm. its imaginarily constructed world and, you know, the world of symbolically governed social relations, for example. Again, you have this problem of incompossible worlds that demand some kind of resolution. So, you know, the child needs to start engaging with the problem at this new higher level, you know, at the level of the, uh, at the symbolic level of, mm -hmm. of language and culture. But again, you know, you know, what's different to the, you know, perhaps the cliched psychoanalytic story is that there can never be a perfect resolution to these problems. You know, right. these problems for Deleuze, that's all we've got. You know, we live our lives by encountering problems and trying to solve them in creative ways until one day, you know, we'll encounter a problem that we cannot solve and, and that'll be it. Or it'll, it'll sort of, as you've kind of pointed out, this encounter is precisely that violence that shakes us up and, and forces us to think and find new ways to determine problems, right? Because it's it's always this question for Deleuze about the, we have the solutions we deserve based on the how well the, the problem's determined. And I'm thinking about how, I believe it's in the, thir the 13th series. And by the way, I, I loved your bridging the gap between the Leibniz sections on the static ontological logical genesis and the, the dynamic sections at the end, because by the end of the logic of sense, I, I, I've always felt a little less confident than at the beginning. You kind of run out of steam, at least in my reading. So I really appreciated you, you going to that. But what I was thinking about how in the 13th series on the schizophrenic and the little girl, where we see a sort of Carol giving way to Artaud, right? And where I think it, that's that's perhaps where he first mentions Artaud's sort of elaboration of the body without organs, right? And and I think it's later in A Thousand Plateaus where he says something interesting where, where Deleuze and Guattari say, you know, the body is, it's not against the organs, it's against the organization. And I'm thinking about <laughs> how one of the key things that you bring out and that Deleuze hits upon in different repetition several times in Logic of Sense is that if we're forced to choose between an undifferentiated abyss or singularities that are already imprisoned in bodies, we're sort of in a double bind. And we, we can't be forced to, to have to, to choose that. In fact, I think for Deleuze, we have to sort of, um, I forget how he kind of puts it, but we have to get to the, the point where we can sort of see this impersonal transcendental field where there is this nomadic distribution of singularities. And if we can't attain that, then in a certain sense, we're, we're sort of stuck with what they might call an illegitimate use of the syntheses of the unconscious or whatever, you know, if you want to use the terminology from anti-Oedipus. I'm just kind of trying to tie some of these things together for, um, to piggyback off of what you were, were saying in response to Cooper. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, you know, the relationship between texts like The Logic of Sense and Anti-Oedipus, the question of that relation is a really interesting one. There have been some wonderful articles on it. Dan Smith's obviously treated the issue in depth. Yeah, look, obviously, there's some transformations to the concept of the body without organs going on there. But yes, I mean, I guess what's interesting for me, you know, some of the parallels between The Logic of Sense and Anti-Oedipus, for example, in The Logic of Sense, Deleuze is interested in what he calls the surface, right? The surface of the, the metaphysical surface of the event. And it's something mm -hmm. that takes place between the depths of bodies with their mm -hmm. intensive relations and so on and so forth, and the, the heights of conceptual language and, and thought. The event unfolds on the surface between these, these two dimensions. Right. 
Now, I wonder whether, you know, it's often said that there's a kind of collapse of the surface in anti-Oedipus and all that we're left with, you know, intensities, intensities that um, move and transform one another on a, on a body without organs. That's kind of how Dan puts it, right? That's right. But there are these two, two orders in, two related orders in anti-Oedipus as well, right? We have desiring production on the one hand and social production on the other. And Deleuze and Guattari are quite clear that desiring production is always already social production. Just different regimes, right? That's right. And, you know, obviously there are transformations between these regimes, right? Mm -hmm. These social formations change they are always mixed. Obviously, Deleuze and Guattari make the point that, um, you know, these regi regimes are always mixed. But nevertheless, you know, there are changes taking place at the level of the social. And the only way we can talk about these changes, the, only, the way that Deleuze and Guattari want to make sense of these changes, is with reference to what's going on at the level of desiring production. And then, of course, you know, you have this problem where social production, social formations, you know, capture desiring production, channel it in structured ways such that the social is not something that's continually being transformed. You know, we just have a reproduction of a given social formation all the time. But arguably, the, you know, the, the ideal here is, again, to kind of occupy a surface between desiring production and social production. You know, we can't help who we are, what we are, where we find ourselves in the middle, as it were, is in the middle of a social formation with its particular structures and so on and so forth. Desiring production is also something which is constitutive of who we are. The solutions to the problems that we encounter, again, I realise I'm sort of flipping between vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, just as in the logic of sense, so, you know, we're called on to occupy this uh, surface between the intensive depths of bodies and the heights of language and conceptual thought, and where we can only occupy this this surface by transforming our language, our thought, and, and the way that we live, right. you know, so too we find something similar in, in a text like Anti-Oedipus. Arguably, we are lodged, as it were, between desiring production and social production. Right. And the solution to the problems that we encounter are going to demand a kind of transformation of those social formations that are constitutive of who we are. You know, we need to find ways to, you know, not get locked into social reproduction, to the reproduction of a particular social formation. That's no way to solve your problems. You know, what's being demanded is desiring production, which is also always already social production and social transformation. That actually dovetails back into the way that we were talking about the ethics of the event and fidelity to the event and sort of sort of engagement with the situation in such a way as to forego resentiment or what Deleuze and Guattari might say, or maybe Foucault might say in the preface to Anti-Oedipus is sort of to watch out for the cop in our head, the fascists in our, in our heads and our hearts that can, what schizophrenia has process can always kind of swing to that paranoiac pole. You know, there's always what they might say later. What would they say? Gosh, you can always sort of take deterritorialization too far, too fast and sort of go on a suicidal line of flight. You know, there's all different manners of saying this. But one of the things that, and I'll give this back to Coop, but I wanted to, to bandy this with you. One of the things I was thinking about was in this discussion of Leibniz, right, where Deleuze seems to be saying, okay, you work through the math of this. And we talked a little bit about this with Duffy, right? With Poincaré and the uh, qualitative sort of differential. And you kind of walk us through how Deleuze gets there. But he tries to take 
the differential calculus and reinterpret Leibniz and push him, as you said, to a point of toppling him where convergence is no longer the main criterion, right, guaranteed by God, where in fact, we can affirm the divergence of series. And I was wondering if this has some has some cachet with the notion of, would this be in the sense in which, you know, for Leibniz, disjunction is, is exclusive. And that would give us to a kind of restricted disjunction where there's there's just a hard either or binary, right? That's the rule of compossibility. Whereas Deleuze is kind of saying at the level of the event, there is no compossibility. It's just at the level of sort of worlds. And so we can have an inclusive disjunction, right? Which would be, I think for him, one of the criteria of at least that synthesis. So there's a sense in which the body without organs as pure multiplicity without or the, well, they don't say by the order, but they say design production as multiplicity without unity. There is a sense of um, that's the affirmation of the inclusive disjunction. And that that's the neo-Leibnizianism, or at least one aspect of it, I think that you kind of bring out in your second chapter of your book. Yeah, that's right. Yes, obviously, Deleuze takes Leibniz as, as far as he can. Ultimately, <laughs> though, and as you, as, you, as you mentioned, you know, as we were talking about at the, at the start, you know, in the, in the logic of sense, Deleuze sort of, how to put this in a nutshell, Deleuze needs to stop with a given thinker when they presuppose something substantial, when they you know, gotcha. fail to think the event all the way down, as it were, so processes all the way down. Mm-hmm. Leibniz is one of those thinkers who stops short with and introduces something substantial. And this is, you know, Leibniz's God who calculates and chooses the right. all possible worlds, the, the best of all possible worlds. This is the only world that exists. You know, so you either have this world or some other world that is incompossible with it. There's an exclusive disjunction between these worlds. You know, with the uh, collapse in the belief of God, you know, there's no way we can affirm, you know, that this is the best of all possible worlds. You know, all we are confronted with are these these problems of divergence. But, yeah. you know, as Deleuze says, you know, in compossibility, it's no longer a matter of exclusive disjunction. We can talk about mm-hmm. an inclusive disjunction here, you know, because these incompossible worlds, they constitute the structure of the problematic. Right, a, right. A, you know, this uh, problematic transcendental field, which is, you know, has a kind of metaphysical primacy over language, thought, and life. Now, where was I going with all this, Taylor? Um <laughs> You're maybe going to say that there is no God to guarantee the best of all possible organs for for bodies, right? That that would already lock singularities in a pre-given substantial body. And I think that maybe that's one interpretation of where Cooper's trying to think through this Leibnizian body without organs. Yeah. Perhaps. Let me speak for you, Cooper. This uh, quote that I have up on screen, I think that to me, this is like, almost as a definition of, I've kind of felt it was a definition of body without organs in this kind of Leibnizian way. I don't know if that would be useful, but if we think so, I'll read it. Go ahead. We'll we'll reflect and (laughs) take a moment. You, You can... Everybody then has a dominant monad, which is active in the sense examined above. Its concept explains more distinctly what happens in and for the monads composing its body. The dominated monads, for their part, represent this dominant monad confusedly or passively, but they in turn are dominant or active in relation to other monads, representing them clearly and so on to infinity. The body in this sense, not a substance, but a phenomenon resulting from simple substances, the reality of which is situated in the harmony of the perceivers with themselves at different times and with other perceivers. In other words, a body is an aggregate of substances 
these latter being understood not as parts which make up a whole, but as the body's essential internal requisites, as Deleuze describes it, since all the individual monads express the totality of their world, although they express clearly only a select part, their bodies form mixtures and aggregates variable associations with zones of clarity and obscurity. So to me, that was a good encapsulation of kind of how I sort of perceived the body without organs. I don't know if I'm onto anything, but that's is kind of the first thought that struck me. Oh my God, this is this so is body without organs. But maybe the zones of clarity and obscurity, if they had some resonance with intensity, which becomes kind of the dominant right. catch-all phrase for the BWO and anti-Oedipus, at least. But I don't know if you have any re- reflections <laughs> on, on that, Sean. Or uh... yeah, look, I mean, I'd, I'd actually read that quite slightly differently. Okay. Um, I mean, I take. Deleuze there to be following Leibniz and talking about the way that individuals are constituted within a composable world, within a single world. Okay. Um, so the my constitutive events, as it were, have a law-like relation, a law-like expressive relation. The events that are constituted of me um, express the entirety of this composable world. Okay. So such that you know the reason why an event can be truly attributed to me can be found in some other event in this world and the reason for that event can be found in some other event and so on and so forth, all the way to infinity in, within this composable world. So Deleuze takes this on, right, from Leibniz. In a sense, that describes perhaps what Deleuze would call in difference and repetition our actual world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a world of determined individuals, you know, in which things relate to one another in uh, law-like ways, even though that's not a term that Deleuze uses. <laughs> but the question then becomes, you know, how does the individual transcend its particular individuation within this world? And it's at this point that we need to start talking about divergent worlds. Okay, mm-hmm. so something appears for the individual within its world, which seems to belong to incompossible worlds. It seems to be in common to different possible worlds. Again, you know, using this Leibnizian vocabulary. In other words, you know, something emerges or the individual encounters something which disrupts, which doesn't fit within the structured situation of its world, okay? How does the individual think what it encounters, this problem? Well, it thinks it by transcending its world and, Hmm. you know, creating new modes of thought, creating new ways of living, making sense circulate, as Deleuze says, making this paradoxical entity circulate and transform, you know, all of the different series, series of bodies, series of events, series of propositions, and so on and so forth. What I would say is that, at least this is my reading, and I understand, you know, that there are probably perhaps some other perfectly legitimate readings as well. My sense, though, is that that particular quote doesn't really capture the body without organs. That Mm. quote captures the actual world, and that the body without organs is a world that in the Leibnizian vocabulary is made up of relations between divergent series, relations between incompossible worlds. These relations of incompossibility are taken up and transformed through the encounters that particular individuals have and so on. This is why you have to subtract God in order to think the body without organs, at least in in an affirmative, inclusive sense. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, you know, there's nothing that guarantees the convergence of of series here. You know, we rather 
we find these series, you know, these series are constitutive of the structured situations in, you know, which we live and think. We encounter things that don't quite fit. And, you know, what we have to do is experimentally transform the structured nature of our situation in order to address the problems that, that we face. And it's, it's an experimental process. You know, there's no endpoint that can be defined. It's something that, um, you know, it's, again, coming back to this idea that Deleuze is essentially a process philosopher. This is a, an ongoing and open-ended process of transformation. Yeah, and uh, I'm thinking about this, this notion of the, the crack and ion and, uh, and the dissolved self and how that might be the language of logic of sense in Deleuze's own terms outside of Artaud to think about um, this thing. But, you know, I was telling Coop, we discussed this before, how Deleuze says later on, you know, it's okay to to disagree with your interlocutors and people you're collaborating with. I mean, like Cooper and I, for example, we speculate wildly on these things, but he, Deleuze himself says that he and Guattari never quite could pin down an agreement on what the body without organs meant. So even within their duality and their way of working it out, they were, um, I think as Deleuze says in the preface of Difference Repetition, like, how does one write unless one is writing on the edge of one's knowledge, right? There's this there is a sense in which if you already know what if you already know everything then then why even write except to perhaps perform some gesture of mastery or something like this right yeah yeah look that's exactly right and i mean what's what's interesting too in this discussion and i think you know it's a problem that a lot of scholars working with deleuze find is you know we try and explain what's going on in Deleuze. We try and explain some particular concept with reference to some other set of concepts which themselves need to be explained. So right. you, know, you move to other, <laughs> some other conceptual vocabulary to explain that and so on. And the, and the process is never ending. And you know, of course, Deleuze puts us in this situation because he only ever does philosophy in this indirect way. Yeah. You know, he is putting forward his own philosophical claims, you know, using the voice of Leibniz or Nietzsche or um, Arto, whatever the case may be. You know, is there a way, you know, a good question would be to ask, is there a way of stepping outside all of these conceptual conceptual vocabularies that Deleuze utilises in order to talk about what's going on yeah. in Deleuze in this way that's, you know, at a remove from the way Deleuze himself formulates his philosophical problems and tries to solve them? I don't know. That's, the, that's, that's an the, interesting challenge, right? Well, I guess all, all we can do is is do a little bit more of what Deleuze is doing. You know, we find ourselves <laughs> in the middle, as it were, you know, in a structured situation, which includes lots of philosophy. Yeah. And all we can do in relation to the problems that we encounter is to continue to transform this philosophy that we find ourselves, you know, that this philosophy with which we engage, you know, and which constitute us as contemporary philosophers. Yeah. We try to take that abstract line and link it up to the neighborhood of other singularities and resonate those series. <laughs> and I was also thinking about the fact the way that you were posing the question, which I think is a brilliant question, and it's a question very befitting of uh, logic of sense, which is precisely that this series of concepts reminds me of the paradox of you know the indefinite sorry, regression, right? Where you need a name to name the other name and the the only thing that can say its own sense that doesn't require something else is, is nonsense. And so perhaps body with organs is in the end, we could say it's a nonsense, right? It, it says its own sense in that a, a signification. I mean, that kind of tracks. Yeah. It's an a signifying sign that actually produces <laughs> lots and lots of talk yeah. because there is, you know, if, if someone, you know, if someone says, what the fuck is the body without organs? You know, <laughs> I, how much time do you have? Right. Like <laughs> how many different stories do you want? This reminded me of a question. One of our followers on, on Twitter, because I 
was announcing excited about our discussion and saying like, oh, you know, throw some questions at us. Let's see if they make it in. One of a great question, because it's so interestingly put, is what the fuck is a psychoanalytic novel, right? Because <laughs> kind of how the, the preface begins. Hopefully, I think the edited translation with Constantine Bunis may have fixed that mistranslation, right? It's not a psychological novel. It's a psychoanalytic novel. Do you have, did you ever ponder over what that provocative statement uh, that Deleuze ends his preface with meant? I'm sure I did. If, if um, <laughs> I, I'm struggling to recall what I might have, might have made of it. Um, it's a, a logical and psychoanalytic novel. Yes, that right? that's right. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. right. Sorry. That's right. I mean, in a sense, it, um, it captures the, the, two, the two halves of the book, as it were. One dealing with the, the static logic of sense, as it were. You already answered this question. Structure. Well, you know, maybe. Uh, no, well, <laughs> not to interrupt you, I, I did, yeah. but you, you kind of answered this question by bridging Leibniz and psychoanalysis and this, yeah. this way of this question of surfaces. So I won't be uh, bemoan the point, but I, <laughs> I always found that that line it's the it's a logical and psychoanalytic novel maybe as because cooper and i uh, we come from english literature backgrounds i'm always wondering what the novel meant and if that perhaps is indicative it could be a of, pun well, well yes but i was also thinking it, maybe it refers to the style of the the work right the serial style because the first novels were actually serials maybe not the same kind of series but they were right. you know yeah, uh, sure <laughs> it's a good question and it's a, you know it's a it's a detective and there's something else in the <laughs> yeah. preface too right it's a it's a detective story mm -hmm. um the the clues you know which help us unravel whatever's going on in, in a particular series they can be found in some other series uh yeah. and so on and so on one thing that always struck me though is Deleuze I think he claims explicitly or at least it's implied that you know you can read these series in in any order because they relate to each other differentially, the idea is, right? So they only make sense in relation to each other. And because that's the case, you can read them in any order, as long as you, you know, read them all, I suppose. But I actually think this is really unhelpful. I thought he said that about the plateaus, but does he also say that about the series? I'm reasonably sure. I don't, I must okay. I don't have um, my copy of The Logic of Sense. Oh, uh, that's okay. Office, but but uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't well, think let's, it's let's, either. Let's, let's, you know, presume for the sake of argument that he, that he says something like that, or at least, or at least suggests it, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually think this is not true, or it's perhaps unhelpful. You know, what I'd yeah. strongly suggest is reading the logic of sense from the first series all the way through to the end, then read the appendices, the appendices yeah. as well, and then go back and start reading yes. the series in different orders in order to make those connections. But mm -hmm. don't start just by reading the series in, in a random order. Read them successfully because they, they do progressively develop particular ideas. You know, it would be hard to make sense of what's going on in the third series of the proposition, for example, without having read the stuff about stoic dualities in the, yep. the series prior, for example. And of course, yeah, we get this progression where, you know, we have the static genesis of sense in the mm -hmm. first, you know, two thirds of the book, you know, and then the dynamization of that account in the, mm -hmm. the long psychoanalytic section of the book. So, yeah, so if Deleuze says, you know, you can read these series in any order, um, Don't believe yeah, I think that's a little <laughs> bit unhelpful. Read them in order first and then go back and make of them what you can. This actually kind of bridges to, because they, they use that trope in A Thousand Plateaus, you can, you can read them in any order, but you should read the conclusion last. And I think that I would argue the same thing, that you might want to read A Thousand Plateaus all the way through, because they say it's like listening to a record, right? And so... How do you know what, what's your favorite track until you've listened to it sort of as a 
as a concept album, if you will. And then you can sort of figure out what, what are the singles on it that you really like to, to riff off of and to, and to remix. And yeah, I think that's sort of the same thing. And I was wondering if you feel like, I guess this is back to my point about this being a novel in the, in the sense of the serialism. I know that the serialism, if you will, that phraseology changes in Capitalism and Schizophrenia, but obviously Anti-Oedipus gets back to this strange book and it's not it's not experimental at least stylistically in, in the divisions of chapters but in plateaus and you've got rhizomes i'm wondering if do you feel like the serial experiment in logic of sense which is very creative for deliza's solo work kind of uh there's a resonance in a thousand plateaus. I know we don't have series now, but we have plateaus, which are very kind of similar because there's still these self vibrating continuous regions of intensity that don't culminate. I mean, same way that series ramify. I'm wondering if you see something that gets transferred over to that project that lends to the, to the creative feel of the composition of a thousand plateaus. Yes, I do. And I think you're, you're right. Obviously the, you know, the language of series, disappears mainly because, you know, Deleuze and Guattari are at pains to distance themselves from any structuralism. Structuralism, project. yeah. But, yeah, I think, you know, in, in both cases, what we have roughly is, you know, logic of sense in A Thousand Plateaus, we have the text as a, as a problem yeah. that we as readers encounter, right? Yeah. And this problem has a particular, you know, structure for one of a better word. In other words, you know, there's a relationship between the different parts of the book, which is not linear, ultimately. Now, I'm suggesting, I'm saying that, you know, the logic of sense should be read in a linear fashion, of course. I, I've just said that, so I don't want to contradict myself. I think it's useful pedagogically to read it in a linear linear fashion, but then to understand it, obviously, you need to reread it in a non-linear fashion where, you know, you're using different parts of the book to, so perhaps subsequent later parts of the book to make sense of earlier parts and, and so on. But these two texts, you know, confront the reader as a kind of nonlinear problem in which mm -hmm. the reader themselves is asked to do something. You're asked yeah. to solve a problem. And the only way to solve a problem is to make and experimentally transform connections between different parts of both books. Just sort of put it in a nutshell. I like that because maybe if Deleuze thought of the logic of sense as nonlinear, if it were a line, it'd be a Mobius strip, right? That he's... Kind of the way he talks about sense as the fourth dimension that unravels the circle of uh, the other three. And it's even if it's a, an unwound Mobius strip, it's more tortuous for all that. And, you know, he has that, yeah. that kind of what the, he gets it from Borges, right? That the, the craziest labyrinth is the sort of infinite straight line of straight ion. Line. Yeah, yeah. I know that uh, getting into Simon Dome would, would be a whole nother episode. So I won't. And, and you've written on him and, uh, you know, I have a special place in, in my heart for him for sort of toiling with him for almost a decade. Uh, <laughs> and, but, and I look, I will say, you know, thanks Taylor for all your, <laughs> your work on Simondon. And, and, you know, that translation is an absolute gift to the English speaking philosophical world. So thank you for all your work on that. I liked how reading, uh, reading your translations in your book, I was, I was saying, Hey, that, that sounds a lot like, uh, like the passages. I remember, well, obviously I remember the, um, the introduction, most because it's already it was already kind of famous you know because it was pretty much the only thing available for a long time but i was wondering just quickly and this this is a speculation because we are speculating here if one of the things lacking in badu's appreciation of deleuze to give him a bit of a doubt was this missing link where instead of focusing so much on lautman 
he perhaps did not focus enough on Simondon because I think that your elaboration of the way that Badu kind of mischaracterizes the virtual seems to then also leave out any place for the pre-individual milieu. Again, that's just a wildly speculative thing of inside baseball, but I, I do think that the way that you characterize, you brought together Lautenmann and Simondon as as he does in um in the two those two big footnotes in the fifteenth series on singularities. It's yeah. Simon Simondon's got a new conception of the transcendental. Here's the five characteristics, and then he has that long footnote on Lautmann, and you brought yeah. to, you brought them both together. You know, in the middle of your book. I was thinking that perhaps Badu doesn't appreciate or didn't really... Obviously, he has a special place for Lautmann, right? He says kind of how much he's indebted to to him. But I, I, I've never seen Badu refer to Simon Don, and maybe that just wasn't his cup of tea. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd certainly range him on the side of the... Um, what does he call them? The, the vitalist mystics. The vital, okay. <laughs> um, but I think you're right. That's I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. I'm thinking about difference and repetition here. So... So if one of the, the issues that one could take with Badu's characterization of Deleuze is that he, you know, substantializes the virtual, mm-hmm. you know, that he, he separates out the virtual and the actual, whereas what we ought to be doing is understanding that the virtual and the actual are two inseparable aspects to reality, right? So, you know, it's um, what happens in the actual, as it were, that accounts for the transformations of differences and so on and so forth taking place in the virtual, just as, you know, the becoming of actual entities, you know, depends on a transformation of the virtual differences they presuppose and and so on. So these two things are, these two aspects of reality are inseparable from one another. And Deleuze looks at them successively, right, in difference and repetition in chapter four, you know, chapter five, yeah, Mm and chapter five. So in chapter four, he develops his, you know, sort of mathematical formal model of, um, of problematic ideas. And in chapter five, he talks about the way in which these problematic ideas are actualized through intensive relations. And, you know, what Deleuze makes clear in those two chapters is that, you know, again, these two things are inseparable from one another. You know, he says something in chapter five, like, um, you know, it's the intensities which are creative of actual entities, which express virtual ideas and their Mm. transformations, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. So the idea here is, you know, the virtual has no reality outside of actuality and the intensive transformations of that actuality. Okay, so you've got these two aspects to reality, you know, tightly intertwined and affirmed as such in chapters four and five of Difference and Repetition. And it's not long after he talks about this, that in chapter five of Difference and Repetition, Deleuze starts talking about Simondon and says, you know, Simondon essentially talks about this in terms of the impersonal transcendental field. Yeah. Right. And so it's on the impersonal transcendental field that, as it were, the actual with its intensive transformations and the, you know, the virtual relations and singularities all, all come together. Yeah. So I, I think that's right. And, you know, so there might be something in what you say, you know, had, had Badu been more attentive not to Deleuze's treatment of mathematics, but to his treatment of Simondon, you know, yeah. he, he might have been willing to say, you know, that the actual and the virtual, you know, they can't be separated out. They're inseparable aspects of reality. They mutually presuppose and transform each other. It's the same as the notion of sense, sort of, it insists, but it doesn't exist outside of its expression, right? Or problems insist, and it's it's only through their expression that they find that their non-being, right, the question being, can sort of uh, explicate into uh, and sort of induce its effects. And I think that that's 
uh, he has a hundred different ways of saying it, but it does seem um, it does seem kind of like selective reading on Badu's part. But again, that's besides the the point. Uh, when I was thinking about your discussion earlier, that point struck me as like you know the part he's missing is you know if he would have just read your book right and and the chapter on on Laubon and Simon Don, he might have said, oh okay, I I see the connection there. Maybe the maybe he's not such a vitalist mystic. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that's a claim I'd, I'd sort of put myself, but... Um, <laughs> I'll make it for um, you. Yeah. Look, I guess, you know, one thing I, I just would re-emphasize, though, is that, you know, ultimately, I think Badu got some of Deleuze wrong, but I still think Badu is a is a terrific philosopher. Yeah, um, of course, of course. He made me think about Deleuze in ways that I hadn't previously thought about Deleuze. You know, so he does what all great philosophers do. He presents us with a challenging thought, something to be grappled with, yes. something, you know, to motivate us to transform the way we already think. Yes, um, exactly. You know, moving past our received notions to new points of new, new points of view, new perspectives, which, you know, hopefully are going to be better than the, than the old ones. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it reminds me of, uh, I resonated very much with Ray Brazier when he said that he was first drawn to the Nietzsche and he could have just, stuck with Nietzsche forever because of the way in which there's that resonance. But sometimes I think Nietzsche himself said, you, if you want to follow me, you have to lose me, right? If you, and I think that that's, that's part of it, that there can be, you can have a knee-jerk reaction to Badu's Deleuze, but isn't it better to sort of, uh, let's not be resentful, right? Let's, as you said, it's a challenge to, to thinking. And you're right. I, I think that Badu is, you know, he made me, reinvestigate some of my own prejudices in, in this readings. And I think that the, the best philosophers do that. Badu does have a kind of more rough edge, acerbic, polemical tone. So you catch more flies with honey. But at the same time, you know, you've also got a shock sometimes. Yeah, that's Not, right. Yeah. yeah. There's an ethics of reading that I think you rightly point to there. You know, allow yourself to be challenged by a great work of philosophy. And yes, you know, if it's a bit rough, then perhaps, you know, that's that's all for the better sometimes, you know, be open to those jagged edges, you know, make of them what what you can. Yeah, we ought not to, to shut down these books by, you know, dismissing them or, you know, trying to reduce them to things we already understand. Yeah, I agree. Just, we're doing some, I mean, as part of our undergraduate curriculum, uh, there bring some changes made at the moment and, um, I've just mm -hmm. had to record a couple of videos to go in some of the, some of the new units in the, the Bachelor of Arts. And, you know, I kind of recommend for students, you know, they, one of the questions I got asked was, um, you know, what, what one piece of advice would you give to a student in the BA? And, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, just do as many philosophy units as you can. But, but instead, of, you know, I said, I think what you should be doing is going out and, you know, allowing yourself to be exposed to things that are going to make you uncomfortable, yeah. you know, to things that are going to challenge you and, you know, potentially make you think differently. You know, read philosophy, read literature, you know, mm -hmm. go to a gallery, look at great works of art, you know, mm -hmm. go watch a few experimental films, you know, listen to some experimental music and so on and so forth. You know, mm -hmm. be open to these things, let yourselves be challenged by these things. And, you know, it may not be relevant to your particular majors, whatever they whatever they happen to be, but they will make you into, a, you know, a, a better thinker, or at least they have the potential to make you into, you know, a better, more receptive, more nuanced thinker. I like that. I think that's... That's honestly great, and that that might be a good way to end the show. But I just felt like it it it, it ended on such a positive note. What do you think, Cooper? No, I agree. My other questions were going to take us on to wild tangents. So, <laughs> oh, we we had we had a lot of fun on on. I, I love the the wild tangent we went on. Yeah, and uh, but I really like that 
that call. Sorry, Coop. Well, I was just going to say, like, I had a way to kind of rehabilitate Leibniz in a sense. (laughs) Speculatively would be like through someone like Mayasu and like, what's the only necessary thing is contingency. So that would sort of what the necessity of contingency, the implications of that mean that not everything is possible. Mm. So to connect that to incompossibility and Mm -hmm. this idea, his idea of the best of all possible worlds, right? Like in a sense, there, you know, there could be some truth to that because not all thing, you know what I mean? Due to contingency, not everything is possible. If everything were possible, that means that I think that implies that there has to be a certain conflict of interest between subjects or forces or, you know, what, I don't even know how to articulate that, but that was something that I thought of. I don't know if that is worth diving into at this point, but. It makes me think of the dice throw again, right? Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah, exactly. The the, the ideal event, the dice throw. Yeah, for sure. So roll the dice. (laughs) (laughs) A firm chance. (laughs) I like that. And, but Sean, unless you, uh, if you want to respond to that, that, or or if you want to ruminate on it, um, (laughs) perhaps. Don't feel obligated. You could reiterate, um, what you're working on, or you can close with some some of your future work or some of the problems you're you're encountering. Yeah, thank. I mean, thanks for that. Look, I think you know, I think you put the point really well, Taylor, about about the dice throw. And what, what came to mind too was, um, and it's not a book I've gone back to in mm-hmm. recent times, but um, there's a French Leibniz scholar, Juliette Simon. I should check that reference, but um, she wrote a book that took Leibniz in a different way. So she she uh, has a different starting point for her discussion of Leibniz. So she doesn't start with God. Okay. Okay. Normally, you know, in an account of Leibniz, and I know I did this in the book, you know, you start with God. You know, God conceives of all the possible worlds. Two things are compossible if they, you know, are jointly realizable and so on and so forth. And you go from God to the production of the best of all possible worlds. She, though, starts with the monad in the world. You know, how does this monad confronting various problems and, you know, she picks up in particular on the, the problem of, of evil, you know, which mm. is the subject of Leibniz's philosophy, you know, so, you know, the individual in its world has a problem, you know, confronts evils. How can it make sense of them? And in particular, you know, how can it make sense of these theological claims that um, it encounters as well, you know, where God is all good or powerful or wise and so on and so forth. And she engages in, you know, what might be called a a kind of form of universal jurisprudence, right? So it's the individual immersed in its world encountering problems, which then, as it were, creates the concept of an all-powerful, all-wise, all-good God in such a way that they can, you know, reconcile that along with, you know, using a number of other subsidiary claims, they can reconcile that conception of God with the world in which they live, with all of its various problems and so on and so forth. So a very different approach to talking about Leibniz, but one that's arguably germane to Deleuze's approach to philosophy. You know, we begin in, in the middle, as it were. You know, in our structured situation with all of these problems of divergence and, you know, we make of them what we can in our blind, groping, experimental ways. Yeah, so I don't know if that um, doesn't sort of directly address your question and comments, Cooper, but I think, you know, it's 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 related and um, make of it what you will, I suppose. Look, no, that's and, interesting. And in terms of what I'm working on at the moment, and thanks, Taylor, for, for asking that, I've been doing a lot of work on Deleuze's action and agency. So obviously I wanted to... You know, I looked at the logic of sense. I want to talk about Deleuze's philosophy as a philosophy of events all the way down. It's a kind of process philosophy. But at some point, I actually found that difficult to reconcile 
that kind of ontology or metaphysics of events, I found that difficult to reconcile with the idea that there can be a Deleuzean ethics or a Deleuzean politics. Mm. Because ethics and politics presuppose agents, agents who are capable of doing things, who are capable of action. And Deleuze's philosophy of events didn't seem to leave much room for action and agency. You know, yeah. what happens is the result of encounters with events being transformed in event-like ways and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is a point that Hallward and others others yeah. make. You know, there are no genuine agents in Deleuze. All there are are these intensive forces working through us, you know, these virtual relations determining us to behave in particular ways. But obviously this can't be right. And, you know, Deleuzean ethics, whether it's in the logic of sense, you know, this notion of willing the event, or whether it's in in terms of a thousand plateaus where we find these ethical imperatives to you know, make yourself a body without organs or to de-stratify and, and what have you. This kind of ethics presupposes that there are agents capable of doing things for themselves in a certain respect. So what I've been working on recently is an account of action and agency in Deleuze that I can reconcile with his ontology, can yeah. reconcile with his, his metaphysics, but also that doesn't fall back into any account of sovereign subjectivity. And so I've been trying, I've been working on a kind of Deleuzean philosophy of action, for want of a better word, you know, one that against some trends in Deleuze scholarship, you know, one that is contrary to the idea that there are no actions, agents in Deleuze's philosophy, but also one that is very different to the accounts of action and agency we get in Anglo-American philosophy of action. Interesting. And, Interesting. Um, and, I, and I call it an expressive account of action and agency. Ah, uh, um, yeah. And obviously has, has a relationship to the way that Deleuze uses the concept of expression. But the idea is, so in Anglo-American philosophy of action, you know, an action is explained you know, on the standard story of action, which, you know, goes back to Donald Davidson, an action is explained with reference to the mental states of an agent. So mm -hmm. you know, they have um, an action is an event and it has as its cause another event associated with the coming about of desires and beliefs in the mind of the agent, right? So the agent has these desires and beliefs which have representational content. You know, I desire a cup of coffee. I have some beliefs about how to go about making myself a cup of coffee. And then mm -hmm. that, that representational state then causes me to act in the ways that are specified by that representational content. Right. But the problem with that account of agency is it actually can't account for a lot for a lot of actions that we undertake. You know, yeah. we don't we often seem to do things without having, you know, a well-determined goal in mind or without having, you know, a clear understanding of how we could go about, you know, doing whatever we have a vague sense of what we're trying to achieve. These are things like, you know, writing a book, for example, or, or mm -hmm. a journal article, making anything. In fact, the more general category is, I guess, you know, trying to solve a badly structured problem. Mm -hmm. you know, where mm -hmm. a badly structured problem is, you know, we don't know what the end result is supposed to look like, and we don't know which particular means we're to use to solve that problem. You find badly structured problems in law, in architecture, in education, mm -hmm. obviously in philosophy, and so on and so forth. You know. <laughs> And obviously, people are acting in all, all of these domains, right? How can we talk about this? Well, I think we should actually hang on to a notion of intentions. So like the Anglo-American philosophers, I think we can distinguish between, you know, events that just happen on the one hand and actions that are genuinely done. We distinguish between those two things by referring to a notion of intentions. Okay, so mm -hmm. an act, an event is an action if it's intentional. 
in some sense of intention. But then the whole question is, well, what is an intention? Now, we can't talk about intentions, you know, in order to cover these other action cases, you know, badly structured, solving badly structured problems and so on. We can't talk about intentions as these discrete mental entities, these discrete psychological entities, you know, right. um, desires and beliefs which have representational content. Because, you know, clearly we engage in lots of actions that where we can't represent to ourselves in advance what it is we're actually doing or how we're going about it. So we need to be able to talk about intentions another way. And, and I'm proposing to talk about intentions as expressed entities. So mm. the basic claim is, and, you know, there are a lot of sort of elements to this conception, but, you know, the basic claim is intentions are the expressed of actions. So there's something about the action itself as it unfolds, as it progresses temporally, and as it unfolds in a particular structured situation, you know, with its various norms and, and so on. There's something about the action itself which brings to light or makes manifest or actualizes the intention. And in fact, there's, there's even a kind of reciprocal relationship between the two. It's certainly true that when we act, you know, we can have very vague general intentions, you know, so I want to write a book on this topic, but I've got no idea what that's going to look like or how to go about it. You know, that very vague general intention is certainly going to constrain some of what I do, but mm -hmm. it's actually in the temporal unfolding of actually writing the book. It's in the structured situation, which consists of all the literature that I need to read and, right. you know, paradoxes and problems that I need to grapple with and so on and so forth. It's as my action progresses in time and in this situation that determines or specifies the content of my intention such right. that, you know, it's only once the thing is finished that I can step back and go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I was doing all along, but I could not have said in advance exactly what I was trying to do. So, yeah, so that's, that's what I've been working on. I think it's reconcilable with Deleuze's philosophy of events. And I think it can solve, well, hopefully, it at least addresses some problems in contemporary Anglo-American philosophy of action. And I should say too, you know, I deal with accounts of action or rather accounts of agency that have been proposed by um, some of the new materialists, for example, mm -hmm. um, who draw heavily on Deleuze and, you know, Latour and, and, and others. I don't think that account of agency is going to work either, you know, for particular reasons. So what the new materialist wants to say is that, you know, we have uh, assemblages and all the elements in a given assemblage is an agent in some respect. Right. Okay. In that it can bring about some kind of transformation. The problem with this kind of conception is that there seems to be a difference still between, or rather the new materialist is going to find it difficult to distinguish between things that just happen as a result of, you know, a particular process of assemblage and things that are genuinely done in that assemblage. So, you know, what, what would be an example? You know, let's say we're, um, we're in a running race together and I give you a, a push and, you know, you run it, hit some other runner and you trip over and, you know, I go on to win the race, for example. <laughs> now, there's no doubt, right, on the new materialist account, you were the agent of that tripping over, right? I, I might have bumped you, but, you know, you were the thing that brought about, at least in some respect, the event of the tripping over and, um, and me winning. There's no sense in which you did that thing. Rather, I did it. You know, I was the one who gave you a push, right. made you hit the other runner, trip over, and, and so on and so forth. So we still need some way of distinguishing between, you know, something that can cause an effect in virtue of what it undergoes and something that can cause an effect in virtue of what it does. Right. 
I don't think the new materials can make that distinction. I don't think it's got the conceptual conceptual resources to make that distinction. So again, we're going to need to have some way of talking about the difference between things that happen and things that are done. The hope is that this conception of expressive agency can give us that distinction that we need. What I like about this is it reminds me a little bit of your discussion of Galois progressive determination, but obviously outside of a mathematical context. It reminds me a little bit of the way that Simondon concludes his dissertation talking about the sort of resonance of ethical acts, but it also reminds me a little bit of the example you gave in your discussion of the Stoics with, I believe it was Chrysippus talking about sort of rolling the cylinder, right? And, uh, but obviously, I like that you're, you're trying to draw attention and establish attention in a middle path or, or negotiate, navigate the waters between an Anglo tradition and a sort of more current continental one and sort of find that, especially in relation to the lows, because I do think that he has not just in A Thousand Plateaus, but even in Logic of Sense and Different Repetition, he has some of these beautiful lines he almost waxes most poetic when he's writing about freedom. And so I, I agree with you that there needs to be an account, I think, of agency in Deleuze, because I don't think it's necessarily, even if sort of as he's kind of following Basquet and he's, he's kind of talking about not to be unworthy what happened to us, I think that there is something active in our not being unworthy, uh, right? And, and, you know, I think that it's not just, this gets back to, something that we've talked about with in relation to Spinoza, it's there may be a determinism of the will, but that the will isn't the only thing. There is still this, there is still this negotiation of agency of choice, freedom of choice, freedom of agency, whereby we can, there still has to be an activity by which we come to say amor fati, or we come to declare this love of, of fate, but fate in a Delizian sense, it's not necessarily fate in the Stoic sense, because I don't think he's a full-on Stoic in the sense in which you're either harmonizing with nature or you're not. You're sort of, you're sort of already in the mix of things, kind of like the way Simon talks about, like, if you're not already syntonic with the tension of the mind, you're not going to reach it by incremental levels for the Stoics. You're already... You're either a wise man or you're not, right? You're, you're already harmonized or you're not. And I think that Deleuze, like Simon Don, has, has a different theory of, of ethical acts. So I'm really excited to, to hear more about this in the future. And honestly, I had such a good time with you, Sean. We'd, we'd love to have you back sometime next year when you, when you feel ready to, uh, to troubleshoot these ideas <laughs> more with us and bounce them off of us. Yeah, sure. Look, I'll come back gladly. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Taylor and Cooper, yeah, thanks again for the invitation. It's been been a lot of fun. It's a terrific, been a terrific way for me to spend a, a Sunday morning. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, well, we'll let you uh, we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. And honestly, we really appreciate you. And uh, you know, this it's always a pleasure um, meeting new people. But you in particular, this was a singular encounter as always. And uh, and I really, really did, really do want to thank you as well. And uh, we'll stay on here to uh, to sort of debrief and wrap up, but we can uh, we can let you sign off. Once again, thanks to Sean Bowden for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Okay. 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 Okay.
This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is the murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.